Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome. A warning as we get started. You may find this podcast confronting. It contains graphic descriptions. If you haven't heard the story of Ren Arcus, please go back and listen to episode one, The Thunderstorm. You'll hear about a subject most of us find hard even to contemplate, let alone speak of. My full name is Ren Sarah Thunderstorm Arcus. I feel the loss of them all. When he was gone, my, my arms ached. Yeah. Everything about Māori culture is about connecting to people who've passed away. And everything they do, actually. Tangi, pofiri, waiata, wotetea, karakia, whaikorero, all of that. She was tiny. She was beautiful, um, but, but still and silent. People look at us and we joke and we laugh and we... We can be crass, but it's because we cry every day. If something happened to this baby, I do not know how I would cope or how we would cope. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is The Unthinkable. If I didn't meet the right person, I was not going to have children. And that was always my thing. And then I met Sam and he totally was and he is a wonderful father and I knew he would be an amazing father and I really wanted kids with him. I really wanted a family with him. That's Ren's mum, my friend Kate Gudsell. Ren lived for just six days after she was born. Following months of an uneventful, healthy pregnancy, Kate and her husband Sam Arcus left the hospital without their firstborn. Now... They're expecting again. Between, I'll be about 18 and a half weeks, I'll be 19 weeks shortly. And the due date is the 17th of September, which is basically a year okay. since, it'll be a year since we've um, had, had Ren and, and she died, basically. She was due on the 3rd of September, she was born on the 8th and she died on the 14th. This time it's another girl and they've called her Frida. I also think that People think that now that we're pregnant again, and we got pregnant, you know, two months afterwards, it's like, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be right. This isn't a replacement. This was We're talking about human beings, we're talking about lives, you know? You don't just replace a child. People say, oh, don't worry, lightning doesn't strike twice and all that kind of stuff, but, but that's, that's bullshit. Does, it does. You know? yeah, like there are plenty of people who lost two like children. Shit. And, the, yeah. uh, you know, there's plenty of people who've <clears> lost two kids. You'll have heard in the last episode how Sam dealt with the weeks following Ren's death. He'd taken redundancy from his job and instead of having a baby daughter to care for in the months before he started his apprenticeship to be an electrician, Sam's days were dark and empty. We kind of can be a little bit macabre with our jokes or whatever, but this is one of our ways of dealing with what happened is... I think people 
look at us and we joke and we laugh and we we can be crass, but it's because we cry every day. And in the aftermath of Ren's death, Kate had to go back to work. Ren died on the 14th of September and I think I went back at the end of October. So six weeks, I mean, it's not long. And now I think, look back and think, my God, six weeks. But it felt like quite long and I really just needed to do something. Like I just, you know, I was sort of kind of sitting around home. I needed to just get back into the swing of things. And I just really wanted to kind of get back into a pattern of living again a little bit because, you know, just to kind of get back back into the cycle of stuff and because, you know, we wanted to start trying for kids again and all that sort of thing. So I felt like the the sooner I got back to kind of as close as normal as we could get, not that we'll ever be normal again, but um, it was the better. And it was it was a really – I remember Sam drove me in and it, just, even now I feel like anxious thinking about it. It was horrible. I remember just feeling so – it wasn't like I was nervous about coming back. I just didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to have, you know, all those questions. I didn't know how I was going to deal with people. I didn't know how people were going to treat me. And I remember just walking into the newsroom and not being able to physically move past because you basically walk down a corridor and then you kind of get into the newsroom and I couldn't go further and I just turned around and ran into the bathroom and started crying. She dried her tears and stepped into the newsroom. People said hi. She said hi back. Kate turned on the computer and was confronted with stacks of emails, condolences for the loss of her daughter. Some people were amazing. I remember this one um, bulletin editor who was just the sweetest guy ever. And he just sort of came up and he just said, I'm really pleased you're back, but I'm really sorry for the reason you're back. And it was just like exactly the kind of thing I just needed to hear something like that. And it was just nice. But I think possibly my own personality feeds into it a little bit because I'm not, you know, I'm probably... You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fierce or whatever, but I'm, you know, I'm pretty hard. And I think probably it's not like I'm quite, I'm not like a vulnerable person, it sort of thing, if that makes sense. So I think people probably were maybe a little bit, you know, scared to say something to me, possibly. Oh, Um, I'm scared to say something. Yeah, exactly. So So my own husband is, that's quite (laughs) potential, my colleagues. So I think that possibly feeds into a little bit, you know, someone sent me an email saying, I'm really sorry, but I know you're really resilient. So that's, you know, I think people that may have been the attitude as well. But not everyone struck the right note. Do people say kind of weird stuff to you that you kind of feel like turning around and, I don't know, giving it to them with both barrels, but you kind of can't? Yeah, Yeah. and the good thing is Kate does give it to them with both barrels most of the time. Someone said to me, it's kind of like a family bereavement that you went through, isn't it? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, my daughter did, did die, so it it is a family bereavement. And they were like, yeah, kind of like a family bereavement. I was like, no, no, it is a family bereavement. And then I just couldn't, I just couldn't physically control myself, so I just walked away. Kate was RNZ's environment reporter, and a couple of days later, she went to her first media conference as part of getting back into her job as a journalist. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Why am I here? And going in and just sitting and talking to people that I'd sort of seen six months ago. And I think they just assumed that, you know, my life was completely normal. But actually, yes, the night before, you know, less than 12 hours ago, I'd had my daughter's postmortem results. Yeah. So it was pretty hard. And it was hard as well because, you know, with my, with, you know, doing the environment round, there's a lot of people I talk to, you know, just contacts, that sort of thing. And I had to ring all these people up. And they're like, oh, how are you? How's your baby? And I'm like, 
she died. And they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, I know. Can we, let's do the interview, <laughs> you know, kind of, it was just, and people, people were lovely. People were really lovely. And I think they genuinely felt, you know, awful for me and understood, you know, understood where, the, you know, that maybe I wasn't sort of a hundred percent and stuff, but um, yeah, it was really hard. And it took a long time for me to kind of get that passion and that, um, and just not feel completely numb about everything. I mean, I felt numb about everything. It wasn't just work. I just kind of had to get on with it though, because I just felt like it was either that or sit at home and drink, really, you know. <laughs> Kate became pregnant with their second child two months after Ren's death. And Frida's due date is almost a year to the day. If something happened to this baby, I do not know how I would cope or how we would cope. It's about putting on your big girl pants and getting on with life. And life has puddles in its path and you just climb out of them. Kia ora, I'm Debbie Watkin. I'm a psychologist at Te Pururuho, which is a ADHD child protection team. The unthinkable happened to Debbie Watkin and her husband, Paul Fairless, too. I was scared. It was... Um, the process really began quite quite swiftly. Paul pulled up a big lazy boy chair, um, and we pretended we were we knew what we were doing. We Paul took some work, and he was sitting doing some work, and I took a book that I flipped through the pages off, but you know was doing nothing there. Um, and we we didn't know anything. We saw no social worker. We saw no certainly no kindness. Um, I recall. Debbie's a psychologist who spent much of her career working in the field of family and child trauma in Auckland. Everything shapes your life, um, every experience, good and bad. Um, you bundle it together and you add it into your, your memory bank, your um, storage, and it becomes some of the hard stuff, but also some of the precious stuff. In 1991, seven months into her first pregnancy when she was 32 years old, her first child, Terrell, was stillborn. She was tiny, she was beautiful, um, but, but still and silent. Debbie had gone on her own for a regular GP visit and there was no heartbeat, so she was sent to hospital for monitoring. I remember sitting in, you know, in the appointment um, and then having, having a, a new scan um, and a doctor coming in and being very um, harsh and saying, um, I'm not sure what you know, but your baby is dead. And it really, um, I remember just, again, not not crying, not being distressed. I was, okay, okay. And just, I was really trying to be brave. I was trying to be grown up. Um, and yeah, my baby was dead. The day Debbie found out, She'd been nesting and pottering, painting the kitchen ceiling and had been doing some planting in the garden. It was only in hindsight she made sense of that time. Then I remember sitting and starting to put together the pieces and remember thinking I hadn't felt entirely right. I'd felt funny kind of tummy feelings. My, the kicks had changed to be more like cramps. Um, which I guess was really the, the beginning of that sort of ultimate um, labour, early labour. Um, but it was, you, you suppress all of that, you push it down deep. And I was focusing on a round belly and um, 
a warm belly and um, positive thoughts. So I, when I sat and started putting together the pieces, it became more clear. But I suddenly felt like I was a walking coffin. I felt distressed and um, anxious and at the time was trying to compartmentalise things and really wanted to tick this off and I didn't know where I was going but I wanted to deal with it. Um, I don't know if it was the right thing and I think I, I look back and I think I wish I'd gone slower. No one in the family saw their baby except Debbie and Paul. It was awful and I'm a little uncomfortable talking about it but I remember after she was born um, the the doctor who'd come in to sort of help Paul he delivered her and then placed her on a a metal like a, a large kidney dish and I remember saying get her off that um I want her and they said you want to see her and I said yes I want to see this baby so I they sort of took her out of this cold metal dish and put her on this sheet which I just lifted between my legs and um, we sat we sat really there for about three hours. Um, so we had her for a few hours um, and really just touched her and looked at her. Um, so had her for a little bit of time. At birth, Terrell was identified as a boy and after weeks of grieving for him, later they were told their baby had in fact been a girl and they were left reeling at the loss of a different child. There was no birth certificate or death certificate. And they ended up taking three Polaroid photos, which were awful. She lay on a blood-stained green sheet with no, no attention to wrapping her or caring for her, and so that's um, still distressing, but special for me to have, and I'm grateful for that, um, which I almost bears witness to that actually she existed because you can kind of almost deny that there was ever a life. You've heard in episode two that while grief counselling was one thing that helped Sam and Kate, they struggled with the Western attitude to grief. Debbie says time itself doesn't heal. It's the people and what you do in acknowledging trauma. I think that in today's society, Western civilization, where we're all about trying to make things better and be done with grief um, or a, a, any event, whether it's a trauma, and we do this doing, we do this um, therapy or um, counseling. I think what does make a difference is the being. I think we flip the whole idea about don't just sit there, do something. I think we have to flip it and do the don't just do something, sit there. And I think the people who really made the difference were the people who just sat with me, who didn't even often use words, who just shown, showed kindness. Um, you know, and now this is my work that you asked about how this has impacted on me now. And this is the trauma-informed practice that we adopt here um, at Te Pōruruho, which is really about recognise the impact of trauma on people, but also the value of kindness in resilience because that's what makes the difference to somebody. Not, not in my opinion, flipping them off to counselling to see somebody one hour a week. Um, for some people, that may make a difference. Um, but for me, it was every day. It wasn't an emotion I needed to pull out once a week at two o'clock on a Tuesday. 
it was in the middle of the night. It was, um, you know, unpacking the dishwasher. Debbie mentions there how it's now her vocation. Terrell changed her life. Debbie repeatedly wrote and complained to National Women's Hospital where she'd given birth. After Terrell's birth and death, and as a result of her criticism of the hospital, National Women's asked for her professional help. So Debbie wrote Empty Arms, a booklet for parents whose babies die around the time of birth, and she did training with medical professionals across much of the 1990s. The response to um, distress in, in all of its forms, um, I think, is what we understand about the brain and neuroscience and this part of the brain, this limbic system, where all of those emotions and memories get stored. It has to start with being stable and empathetic and kind to begin with before our, well, we can do any thinking and reasoning. And as this lovely um, elderly Māori woman came up to me recently when I was presenting and she said, you know, Debbie, isn't it amazing that neuroscience has finally caught up to what Māori have always known, that is e tangata, e tangata, e tangata. He aha te mea nui o te ao. He tangata, he tangata, he tangata. Debbie's referring to a Māori proverb, meaning, what is the most important thing in the world? It is people, it is people, it is people. And it's talking about not just the people alive here and now, but people that are connected by tūpuna, ancestors, through to descendants yet to be born. It's the Māori worldview. People all congregate, they support each other, and everything about Māori culture is about connecting to people who have passed away, and everything they do, actually. Tangi, pōwhiri, waiata, wōtietia, karakia, whaikorero, all of that. It's all about connecting to people who have passed away. Called Pania Mitchell Tokuingwa. So my name yep. is Pania Mitchell and uh, no Taranaki Aho, so I'm from Taranaki. Pania is a social worker in Porirua, just north of Wellington. Her second child, Manaya, was born on the 30th of December 2007. When I gave birth to him, one of the nurses noticed a clicky noise in his chest, and then she went and took him to Niku or neonatal unit and it all kind of went crazy from there and the doctor told me that my son had transposition of great arteries which meant his heart wasn't pumping correctly and at that time probably told me that he was going to die he could die I can't remember it was a bit of a blue um, at that time my husband had gone off and then they rang him to tell him to come back it was a bit crazy uh, and what happened is someone from Auckland came, flew down to Wellington and did an operation on Manaya. And then me and my husband and Manaya flew back to Auckland to see if he would survive uh, that operation. And sadly, he didn't survive that operation and he passed away on the 5th of January 2008. Nine years after Manaya's death, education researcher Nicola Bright had bad news about her second pregnancy, coming just after New Year. She told me about it through her tears. Well, I'm here to talk about my boy, Te Oriwa. So, he... 
He was stillborn at 22 weeks on the 13th of January 2017. Uh, I found out that he died on the 10th of January, so I'd gone through Christmas and New Year's and I'd come back to Wellington to have my regular midwife appointment. And they couldn't find a heartbeat. So they sent me to the hospital to get the proper scanners and put me through a couple of different scanners and they um, found out my boy had died. <sighs> yeah. And I'm really sorry. And that's really, that's quite, God. It's not long ago at all. When you hear that news, what, what happens? What do you do? What do you think? Ah, oh, it's like a, a black hole opens up on your life. Because you have all the, you have a life planned with this child and then it's all gone. So you're at the hospital and... So I was there uh, alone because I thought this was just a regular appointment. So I was just doing my thing and, and I, when I found out the news, so I rang Fano and friends from the hospital and I was a mess of course and they came they came and looked after me and yeah I just fell apart yeah. um how did you have your baby I gave birth to my son which was a surprise actually because I had uh, had surgeries in order to help me have a baby and I'd been through IVF and lots and lots of procedures to get to this point and uh, I had expected to have a c-section because it would have if he'd gone full term there was concern that I might have died having him the usual way so I was quite surprised when they said you're going to have this baby <laughs> the old-fashioned way uh, and I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. I hadn't done any of those classes where you go and learn how to breathe through it and, and do all those things because I was just not expecting this to happen. Um, so yeah, yeah, he was born and I had a room at the hospital to myself and my whanau came, uh, my sister and my auntie and my father and friends all turned up uh, and strangely it was the kind of birth experience, apart from my son having died, apart from that, it was the kind of birth experience I would have wanted. I was surrounded by people who loved me. There was singing. I was walking up and down the room in labor and my friends were singing so that I could sing to relax me. So I, I have some beautiful memories. Strange. It sounds strange to say this, but I do. Yeah, there's... There were many beautiful things about his birth. What was it like to hold him? What did he look like? Can you tell me about him? Well, he was born at 22 weeks, so I was actually a bit frightened because I didn't know what, what that would mean. Um, but I remember different parts of him were so perfect. He had the most perfect lips. And he had these big feet, beautiful big feet. And Nicola, like Pania before her, 
took her boy home ahead of his tangihanga, or funeral. On the day, I think, or the day after I found out he died, I got the medication and, and took it, and they sent me home to wait, to wait. And so three days later, I went back into the hospital. So in that time, we got my house ready. We, we set it up in the way you do for a tangi. We had the areas sectioned off where me and baby would be, and where, where, where people could visit us, and away from other sections of the house. As you do, you know, you, you set your tikanga and you go with it. Uh, yeah, so we were ready. I had everything laid out, ready for him. All the mattresses and his clothes. And, and you, you got to, I guess you got to spend time with him in the hospital, but you got to spend time with him at home too. I did. So he was born at about 5.20pm on a Friday night. And, yeah, we spent the night in the hospital together and my sister, my poor sister, had to sleep on chairs pressed together. And then the next day, that afternoon, we took him home. And I got to be at home with him. And I'm still crying. Oh, my God. Sorry. That's all right. That's... I haven't told this bit of the story for a while. And he had a tangi? Yes. So what happened initially is that we took my son back to my mum's house. So initially in my culture, we all kind of congregate back at home, which is at that time for me, that was kind of my home. Uh, and then we stayed the night there uh, where I could share Manaya with my family. Um, so they get the, they got the opportunity to meet him and be around him, and we you know did processes like karakia, and I had a komato come to my house. Yeah, uh, yeah. When you you can't think straight and you have trouble making any kind of decision, it's very comforting to fall back on those rituals and to have people around you who know the same things and everything can click into place to help you. Yeah, so when we were at my home, we'd, we'd looked after others in people's homes before. So once we were there, we knew what we were doing. So Shuruka came and saw us. Um, all my husband's family who lived in Auckland came and saw my, us. All my family who found out about it all, all came to Auckland. And we went to a funeral director. Actually, it's the funeral director of the TV programme, The Casketeers. I know, random. So this was a, a Māori funeral director? Yeah, yeah. It was a Māori funeral director. So we went to his, the funeral place and they changed him and we put him in a coffin. And then we all jumped in our cars and drove to Wellington. And you took Manaya with you? Well, my husband was in the car with Manaya in the van and I went with my sister. Not far away. Like it was a bit of a convoy home. Yeah, we packed up, had our convoy going seven and a half hours to take my boy home and Fano joined us along the way. And and so we took him home to the marae and he, he got to stay in our whare while we sang to him and said goodbye. That sounds really beautiful. It was beautiful. It was really, it was a sunny evening. 
and his cousins came and it was lovely. Yeah, it was really nice. Awful, but nice. Do you remember how you spoke about it in those first few days, how you told his story? Oh, yeah, hard. I cried lots, a lot, over and over again. I'm pretty sure I was wearing sunglasses a lot. Um, I just, I liked that I could tell them the truth and I really enjoy just telling them what we did, you know, we, we went on a plane ride from Wellington to Auckland and to see if he'd live. And, you know, I talked about transposition of great arteries, about his heart. And I tell my children, like, his heart was broken, you know, that we needed to fix it, it couldn't be fixed, you know, like, just talking, like, a way to help people process what just happened. So I really enjoyed getting up and just talking about, even though it was really hard, I really enjoyed just telling people the truth. And so they all went away knowing what I felt, how I feel, because it was pretty obvious. Things didn't work out so well for Nicola. As the wind in Wellington whistled and raged around us, she told me that she has a rare condition where her body destroys the placenta. My boy was one of five, so I, I had miscarried, oh, was it a year or so before him? And then I had my boy, I buried my boy, and then I lost three more babies after him. So I lost my last bubba in March 2018, and I've stopped now. Uh, so the, am I can you cry? <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, so my last my last baby, she is buried with my son. So and with the others I couldn't bury them. They were too early and but with this this last baby we found out at eleven weeks that she died. I, I say she's a she. Uh, and I had a DNC so I had her to take home. So it was just a little group of us for this one and my auntie and my uncle and my dad and my sister and the kids and we just went home and buried buried her with my son. So there's two of them. I don't I don't know what to say. I'm really sorry. So you're a mother of five babies. Is that, that sounds nice. Is that how you describe, is that how you think of yourself? I think of myself as a mother. I talk about my five babies. I guess my boy, of all of them, my boy is most real to me because I held him in my arms. I feel the loss of them all, but my boy, because I held him, feels a little bit different for me. When he was gone, my, my arms ached. Yeah. But I love them all. Nicola chooses to celebrate Te Oriwa's birthdays. This is coming up. This is his anniversary day coming up. We're going to have cake. We're going to do these things. And that's how I'm choosing to deal with it. I'm being really proactive for my own sake so that I don't feel hurt by perceptions of people forgetting him because I'm not going to let them. <laughs> so what do you do? 
Ah, uh, well, birthdays. The first birthday. Oh, God, this is where you're going to laugh because when he's buried, it gets very hot in January. And so I made him a cake for his birth, first birthday and we drove up. And by the time we got there, the icing had just puddled all <laughs> It looked terrible. I sat in the car crying over this cake. <laughs> and then I got a hold of myself. It's a cake. It's a cake. Leave it alone. And then we had a laugh over my cake and <laughs> had a big cry afterwards. And that was his first birthday. And it was, it was stressful on the run up. And then it was very nice to be there and to put his toys on his grave. And yeah, it was hard because it was the first, it was the first time. It was that marker of the first year. Yeah, the second year was a little bit easier because I, I made cupcakes this time <laughs> and they didn't fall apart. And I do his garden. That's part of our, our ritual. My parenting is to put new flowers in his little garden over him and his sister every time I go up. And I really love doing that. And I come back to work and I show pictures of my son's garden. <laughs> So I don't have pictures of him growing up, so I show my my son's garden to people. Yeah. So something else grows. Yeah, yeah, and I I like yellow flowers for him. I like cheery, pretty flowers. It makes me feel happy to see them and think of him with bright, cheery flowers. Yeah, I'm still very much learning to live with whatever my life is going to be. I and I would say my my saving grace, the things that help get me through are my whanau, and especially my iramutu, my nieces and nephews, because they are lovely. And we talk about my boy, and I love that. You know, he's alive amongst these children, and it's beautiful. So I have, I have adults and I have children that I can talk to about my boy and I can talk to them about my plans for his birthdays and what I'm going to do at Christmas. And they don't think I'm crazy, they just go, ah, oh, okay. Go back a couple of generations and every family would have mourned a child who died. The death of a baby would have been commonplace in every street and everyday occurrence. Once, in sharing the story of Terrell, Debbie Watkin unexpectedly reached back through the generations. I remember sitting in church with a, um, a very elderly woman who looked at me and she said, um, it's good to see you, but where's your baby? Um, and I just, as I would say, I'm really sorry, my baby's died. And she was quiet and she sort of turned away. And a moment later, I remember seeing just tears streaming down her face and I said you okay and she said my baby died a long 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 time ago too and it hurts and and I thought this is emotion dug deep and um, it squeezes out through your eyes um, in moments of tenderness and she didn't share much about it but she just held my hand and knew for Kate and Sam, their journey is just beginning. From a 
physical standpoint, you got super pregnant super quick, yeah. if yeah. that makes sense. Like, I was always, it was really interesting because like when, your boobs got huge real quick. And then, no, but like physically, they did. They did. And like, I remember last time, you it took a while. And <laughs> Can I just say, look at your face. Oh my God. No, they're gorgeous. <laughs> Sam, but, shut up. but they got like, you know, within like a couple of. Okay, all right. Can, like, about, bam, can, actually, can I actually? Yeah, yeah. It, and actually, I did look pregnant, but I just like you know. I think with second pregnancies, you know, they always say you just pop. And I mean, I think from probably from about four, you know, four, four or five months with Ren, people only started noticing then if they didn't know that I was pregnant. But with this one, you could tell that that people started noticing. Although having said that, I had a conversation with a woman the other day who is a colleague and I put my hand on my belly and I was like oh I'm, she asked me how I was and I was oh, I'm just really tired and she's like are you pregnant and I was like because <laughs> I'm huge and I was like yes <laughs> and then I'm like did you just and I have to ask this did you just think I was fat <laughs> so but yeah so I mean physically I you know everything kind of popped a lot quicker we'll hear more from Kate and Sam next time on The Unthinkable I was really reluctant to tell people I was pregnant, A, because, you know, I was really scared something would happen again, but also because I didn't want people to think that we had just forgotten our baby. As they prepare for their second child, Frida. I just don't even like the idea of going in and sorting a room out again for the second time and not having someone to live in it. We've watched Frida grow from, oh, like a microscopic heartbeat The Unthinkable is a podcast series by RNZ. It's available on the RNZ website in the podcasts and series section and on all the podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and rate us. The Unthinkable was written and presented by me, Susie Ferguson, and produced by Liz Garton. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin. It was engineered by William Saunders. A special thank you to Kate Gudsell, Sam Marcus, Pania Mitchell, Nicola Bright, and Debbie Watkin. Kakiteano. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.